I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to the LRB podcast, then you'll probably enjoy reading the LRB. You can subscribe to the LRB from just £1 per issue. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link in the description below this episode. Hello, you're listening to the LRB podcast, and I'm your host, Adam Schatz. On this episode, we'll be discussing the crisis in Israel-Palestine with Tarek Bakoni, a political analyst for the International Crisis Group and a contributor to the LRB, who spoke to us from Amman, and Henriette Shakar, a journalist with the website 972 and producer of their podcast based in Haifa. As we were recording our conversation, news of an agreed ceasefire between Israel and Hamas came through, ending 11 days of intense fighting. More than 230 Palestinians were killed and a dozen Israelis. More than 70,000 Gazans were displaced from their homes, and there has been wide-scale destruction of infrastructure. In this episode, we talk about the war and the ceasefire, but we also explore the larger context to the recent violence. The struggle in the East Jerusalem neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah, where Palestinian families face expulsion from their homes, the siege of Al-Aqsa Mosque by Israeli forces, and the explosion of violence in mixed cities inside Israel itself. We also talk about the international repercussions of the war, particularly the response of the Biden administration and the emergence of new trends in Washington. Tarek, Henriette, thank you for joining me on the LRB podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. This is uh, not the first time that we've seen a a massive Israeli strike against the Gaza Strip. Can you explain how this war began and also how, in your view, it differs from the wars of 2014 and 2009? Tarek. Well, I think the... To understand what's happening today in the, in the Gaza Strip, we actually need to be looking at Jerusalem and specifically at the neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah, which is in East Jerusalem, where four Palestinian households have been fighting against forced expulsion by right-wing Israeli Jewish settler groups that are looking to take over their homes and their properties. Now, those Palestinian households, and there are just four of more than 27 at least who are facing similar expulsions, have been living in those uh, properties since 1957 when they were resettled there as refugees after having been forcibly expelled from their homes in what is now Israel. At the time, the Jordanian authorities settled them in those homes because Jordan was in control of that land before the Israeli occupation began in 1967. Now, the Israeli legal system is upholding land claims and land deeds that 
uh, right-wing Jewish settler groups are presenting to the court that go back to the Ottoman era. So they're claiming that those lands and those properties were in Jewish trusts and the legal system in Israel has upheld that legal provenance and uh, made the case that Palestinians had been squatting there for that period of time and now need to be evicted, quote unquote. The problem with that is that that legal provenance only works one way. Palestinians who have their own land deeds and their own land claims to their homes and properties in what is now Israel and in West Jerusalem have no way of presenting those land deeds or land claims into the Israeli legal system. And so what we have is a process where Palestinians are effectively constantly rendered as quarters and removed from land to make room for Jewish settlements. Now, the reason Sheikh Jarrah became a lightning rod is because it's a microcosm of what Palestinians have long understood to be their tragedy, which is that Zionist settlements in their land consistently dispossesses them. It's a, it's what Palestinians refer to as a process of an ongoing Nakba. And so this was unfolding in Sheikh Jarrah in the early days of May, and the Supreme Court in Israel was meant to issue its verdict on the 10th of May. Now, at the time, uh, there were other political factors that were happening around that microcosm, which we can go into. But ultimately what happened was that Hamas in the Gaza Strip on the 10th of May, which is when the Supreme Court was meant to issue its verdict, called on the Israeli uh, forces, which had worked and moved into Sheikh Jarrah and into the Al-Haram al-Sharif or the Temple Mount to try to suppress the protests that have emerged in support of the Sheikh Jarrah families. Uh, Hamas called on these Israeli forces to to uh, get out of the Al-Haram al-Sharif and to get out of Al-Aqsa Mosque and gave them an ultimatum that if they don't do that by 6 p.m., they will fire rockets at Israeli cities, which is indeed what happened. So that was that's the anchor or the center of the escalation, and it sort of unfolded from there. And, and we can talk about what happened. But primarily, the reason that this is different from past escalations that we've seen is that actually its center of gravity is in Jerusalem, not in the Gaza Strip. Tarek, I, I realize that the, the fact that Jerusalem detonated this is unusual, and yet at the same time, it was Jerusalem that detonated the second intifada when Ariel Sharon made his visit to the Temple Mount. So there is a precedent for this. And Jerusalem has always been the scene of these very intense clashes. What were the Israelis doing on one of the most sacred nights of Ramadan, storming Al-Aqsa Mosque and causing uh, hundreds of casualties? Absolutely. I mean, there there is a precedent here. Jerusalem has always been, and Al-Aqsa specifically, has always been a lightning rod. And I think we've seen that, as you say, with Sharon in the Second Intifada. And in, in that instance, there was absolutely the recognition, or there should have been the recognition by the Israelis uh, that this would this could potentially be explosive. But the way I see it is that there are two factors here that made the Israelis maybe less concerned is maybe not the right word, maybe less worried about this expanding beyond Jerusalem. 
The first is that within the Israeli political system itself, there's currently a bit of a vacuum. Uh, the parties are locked in various negotiations, coalition negotiations, after their fourth national election, the fourth in two years. And there is uh, uh, these events in Jerusalem are unfolding against that kind of political vacuum from the top down, which may have explained the nonchalance in which some of the Israeli political parties dealt with this and the the provocation in which others dealt with it, that they were looking to provoke, that they were looking to maybe create a situation that would work in their favor in the coalition negotiations. But the other factor here is that there is, and we've seen this for the past few years, certainly under the Trump administration, and I think continued since, is this arrogance, this Israeli overreach, the sense that they can push forward and move forward and get away with it. And they've seen that in everything from the all the activities that they're doing in Jerusalem through to the normalization deals that they have with the Arab states, that even while they're pushing forward with prospects of annexation, there is actually no pushback and sometimes reward. You're talking about the so-called Abraham Accords, by which uh, the Trump administration and the Netanyahu government imagined they had completely neutralized the Palestinians. Absolutely. And I think it's been indoctrinated in certain ways that the Palestinians have been neutralized and that there is nothing that the Israelis can do that would face them with with effective Palestinian pushback. And I think Hamas is interesting in this instance, because for the past 10 or 14 years, I should say, since the blockade really was, was put in place in 2006, 2007, Hamas's use of military force was more or less focused on forcing Israel to alleviate the impact of the blockade. So Hamas was in some ways contained to the Gaza Strip. So Israel would feel that it can do whatever it wants to do in the West Bank and in Jerusalem and get away with it. And in the Gaza Strip, it dealt with it differently. It dealt with it through various cycles where the Israeli politicians and military establishment call mowing the lawn. And so there's this sense that, you know, Hamas was put to the side. It's been marginalized. We deal with Hamas in Gaza. Meanwhile, everywhere else, we're pushing against an open door. And the Palestinians have been so defeated and so acquiescent that there's really nothing that's going to happen that's going to be fundamentally threatening to us. And I think this moment is sobering for many who are watching Israel-Palestine, certainly for Israelis, uh, because that assumption is being fundamentally challenged. That's been challenged because Hamas, in this case, has presented itself as the defender of Jerusalem and has also shown through its use of rockets that it can hit much deeper into Israel, thereby changing the balance of fear between Israel and uh, and the Gaza Strip. Uh, Henriette, I'm wondering, what have you been hearing from the people that you've been talking to uh, in Haifa about Sheikh Jarrah and the siege of Al-Aqsa? So we've also seen protests happening in Haifa, in Yaffa, in, uh, in Lid over what's happening in Jerusalem. And in that way, we can really see that the Palestinian people are more united than we thought, or rather that the fragmentation policies that Israel has been exercising, this divide and rule policy, isn't as successful as we, we thought it might have been. In Haifa, we're seeing people protest in solidarity with the people of Sheikh Jarrah, in solidarity with the Palestinians in Gaza. And there it really is a sense that there's a younger generation that sees the unity of the Palestinian people as more important than achieving a Palestinian state. 
which definitely shifts a little bit the the framework we use to talk about any possible resolution. Does that cut across political divisions within the Palestinian community in a city like Haifa? I mean, the Palestinians in Haifa are both Muslim and Christian, and they also subscribe to different political ideologies. Some support the Communist Party, others support Balad, the Nationalist Party, others are more sympathetic to the Islamist parties in Israel. I, I, I'm guessing that this is something that unifies them. Well, Haifa is really interesting in this context, because there's two things happening. Even though Haifa is seen as the, the symbol of coexistence, quote unquote, you know, every year the city holds um, a festival called the Holiday of Holidays to celebrate the three religions. But at the same time, we saw how in uh, one of the more recent elections, about 40% of the city's voting population cast their ballots for right-wing parties. And we're also seeing a positive migration, or rather that there's a, there, there are more Palestinians from the nearby villages and towns moving into Haifa. I would say that what we're seeing is a little bit of tension between Palestinians and their leadership. We're seeing an insistence to organize at the grassroots, at the grassroots level and to sort of ascertain independence, independent thought, independent organization networks that aren't necessarily connected to any of the parties. You know, after the clashes or violence, confrontations uh, broke out in uh, mixed towns, um, there were numerous uh, articles in the press mourning the end of, quote-unquote, coexistence in these towns. My sense is that this was more a mirage than reality, that there had only been a kind of tense mutual toleration, especially given the, the power disparities between uh, Israeli Jews and Palestinian citizens of Israel, who um, in recent years have suffered increasing discrimination and have also uh, seen the passing of this so-called nation-state law in 2018. Can you talk a little bit about the impact of the nation-state law on the perception that Palestinian citizens of Israel have of their place in this country. Definitely. So the spark that lit this current uprising that we're seeing in Palestinian communities inside Israel might have been the developments in Jerusalem. But there's also increasing frustration over the past few years over this larger injustice that's been building up. Israel basically grants Palestinians rights based on a tiered system. And Palestinian citizens are at the top of that system. But the policies we're subjected to are essentially an extension of the same settler colonial rule that we see in the occupied West Bank and in Gaza. And what this looks like on the ground for Palestinian citizens in Israel is having your rent application rejected because you're Palestinian. It's being forcibly displaced from your home or your city altogether because you're Palestinian. It's worrying over where to send your children to school because of an unequal allocation of resources based on ethnicity. It's a reality of constant police brutality and higher incarceration rates while organized crime groups run undisturbed in Palestinian cities. When the Jewish nation state law was passed in 2018, it was really just a confirmation for many Palestinian citizens of the lack of equality that they were already feeling. It enshrined into law the priorities of the state, basically uh, telling Palestinian citizens that 
Jewish supremacy will always come before any kind of civic equality. I wonder if you want to say a word, though, about Ayman Ode's overture. When I mean, he ma essentially made an he made an offer on the um, on the part of the joint list, the Arab joint list, which he led to uh, support Benny Gans, and Benny Gans had no interest in getting support from the joint list, and instead was going to form a, a unity government with Netanyahu. Right, and I think this is reflective also of these processes that we're seeing more largely inside Palestinian um, communities in Israel, where there is, on the one hand, desire to improve our, our quality of life here and to play the political game all the way, but there's also a strengthening of the Palestinian identity. And there's also a clear understanding that participating in Israeli politics does not mean that we are going to give up on Palestinian liberation, for example. We keep hearing these references to so-called mixed cities. What, what does it mean? What is a mixed city in, 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 in Israel? Well, what we now call mixed cities is basically uh, cities where Jews and Palestinians live together, although in most of these places there's a clear Jewish majority. And there's only a few of them around the country, Haifa, Akka, uh, Yaffa, Ramlelid. These are historically Palestinian cities that were fundamentally changed after the 1948 war, when residents were expelled or made to flee. And many of the Palestinians who once lived there are now refugees who have yet to return. At the same time, as the state was growing, Jewish immigrants were settled in these areas. And that's what now makes them mixed. But it wasn't just the demographies that shifted around that time. Israel made a, a very clear effort to rename the streets, for example, in order to erase any reminder of Palestinian presence. Well, Lod used to be Lida, and it's a town where tens of thousands of Palestinians were expelled in 1948 under the orders of Yitzhak Rabin, who uh, much later was prevented from writing about this episode in his memoirs uh, by the Israeli government. Right. I mean, the Palestinians who weren't expelled were placed under military rule until 1966. So even those who, you know, were able to stay in their homes were still, you know, treated differently. And this, uh, th this segregation continues to this day. It's still quite visible in places like Lid and Ramle, where there's literally a separation wall dividing Palestinian communities from the Jewish ones. It's very similar, for example, to what we see in Zarka and Caesarea up the coast. Now, Tariq and Henriette, as we've been talking, Israel and Hamas have agreed a ceasefire mediated by the Egyptian government, and it's going to take effect at 10 a.m. on Friday. We've taken a few moments to absorb that. And so, Tariq, what's your take on the ceasefire? I mean, I think it is incredibly important that the ceasefire was reached because the level of destruction and death in the Gaza Strip is quite harrowing. So I think that was a matter of priority. But to think that that ceasefire is going to end what is now a movement that is bigger than just the Gaza Strip would be to misunderstand what's happening on the ground. You know, no one knows how this movement is going to unfold. But I think that certainly from the Israeli perspective and the Israeli motivation and possibly the American one backing it, there will be an attempt to try to segregate the Gaza Strip again, to, to, to focus on the ceasefire as the end of hostilities and to then go back into that system of fragmentation. So we'll have Netanyahu talk about rebuilding relationships between Arabs, quote unquote, and Israelis within Israel. And then we'll, we'll have 
the rhetoric that, you know, now there's calm on the Gaza Strip and will ease the blockade. And that's a, a return to a process of fragmentation that puts all these different Palestinian constituencies in their silos. The ceasefire could be, in the Israeli political opinion, the first step of, of doing that and breaking off all these different components. But the reality is that from the bottom up, there's a real effort to break that. And I think a successful effort so far to break that. And so I think while the ceasefire is really important uh, to end the death, of civilians. It is not the end of what we're seeing happening on the ground. Henriette, what does the what does a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas mean for Palestinian citizens of Israel who um, have been terrorized by Jewish paramilitaries in recent days? Well, before we get to the effect on Palestinian citizens, I think it will be interesting to see the effect of the ceasefire on the formation of a government. I mean, Israel still does not have an operating government after four elections in two years. So it will be interesting to see how the different political parties interact with that news. In terms of what it means for uh, Jewish militias on the ground, I mean, we, again, to tie this to the Israeli discourse, there is no desire for a ceasefire in many Jewish-Israeli communities. The, the ceasefire is seen as a weak position vis-a-vis Hamas. And there are, you know, uh, calls to completely destroy Hamas, regardless of uh, the civilian casualties and, and the destruction that it's causing. So... I mean, I'm not sure how it will affect these um, Jewish militias exactly, but it will be interesting to see whether they feel even more emboldened to, to take matters into their own hands and to exact a sense of justice, you know, on the streets, basically. You mean acts of revenge? Acts of revenge or acts of frustration, acts of asserting Jewish supremacy and power. That's what we're seeing right now happen in the streets as police basically looks on. The Biden administration so far, has shown itself to be much like previous American administrations in saying that it supports, quote unquote, Israel's right to, def- to defend itself and showing comparably little concern for the uh, Palestinians in Gaza. And yet there does seem to be a shift in the conversation uh, in D.C. And the reporting, too, I think, has reflected this shift, reporting of startling clarity in places like The New York Times, even. Um, is that your sense, Tarek? Do, do you feel that there that there is a, a shift in the conversation with figures like uh, Bernie Sanders and Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar and others speaking frankly about Israel's conduct? Yes, absolutely. I do think that there's a shift. I think it's discernible. And I think that this shift comes at the at the, the, the sort of the end of years and years of grassroots mobilization and activity in the U.S. and elsewhere by Palestinians and by allies of the Palestinian movement. And it's been incredible, actually, to watch and to experience because it feels like a, a breakthrough moment, having uh, congresswomen in America's hallways of power using language that Palestinians have long used to describe their own struggle, language like ethnic cleansing, like apartheid, is something that Palestinians have not heard or seen before. I mean, you've talked about self-defense. The first time we heard the international policymaking community or the diplomatic corps talk about self-defense was after more than 500 Palestinians were injured in Jerusalem. And that 
uh, phrase was only invoked when rockets from Gaza fell into Israel. So the lesson there, the message is clear that Palestinians have no right to defend themselves from what is actually a much more violent and brutal system of occupation and colonization, while Israel, which is a militarized nuclear power, does have the right to defend itself. And so I think that the reason that we're seeing this shift is because over the course of the past two years, really two things have happened. The first, and we've talked about this a bit in the podcast, is the 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 flagrant shift to the right that the Israeli political system has been doing. We've seen that in the nation state law. We've seen that in uh, discussions around annexation. Uh, And this happened at a time when the Trump administration was in power. So for many in the U.S., the association between the the Benjamin Netanyahu's of the world and the Trumps of the world made it easier for them to break out of what was before a bipartisan consensus on Israel. But the second shift is that international organizations and Israeli Jewish organizations have finally embraced what Palestinians have been talking about for decades, which is to come out and say that actually this notion of partition is false and that we can separate quote unquote Israel proper from its military regime and occupied territories. It's actually a single regime and it's a regime of apartheid. And Human Rights Watch in April put out a very detailed report arguing that Israel is committing the the war crimes of apartheid and of persecution against the Palestinian people. So now members of Congress and American politicians, when they come out and say discourse that actually mirrors what Palestinians have been saying, they don't sound necessarily as biased as they might have sounded five years ago, because now those claims are verified by international human rights organizations, by Israeli Jewish organizations. It's unfortunate that those claims needed that kind of that kind of validation to be heard. But nonetheless, I think that's the groundswell that led to what now feels and looks like a very different Right. And there's also, I mean, there have been these reports by Amnesty, as well as Human Rights Watch and Yesh Dean and and, uh, the Israeli human rights organization uh, Beth Salem. And there have also been some interesting developments in the American Jewish community uh, with the emergence of groups like Jewish Voice for Peace and the magazine Jewish Currents. Only a week ago, Peter Beinart uh, published a piece in Jewish Currents in the New York Times, also in The Guardian, about the Palestinian right of return. So, that too, I think, is part of this new milieu. Absolutely. Those are all uh, parts uh, or all different parts of the, the same movement that seems to be unfolding, primarily in, in the U.S. When we're looking at the Western world, the English-speaking Western world, this movement seems to be most developed, most cohesive, most progressive in the U.S., partly, I think, because there is such a large Jewish constituency in the U.S. Uh, that has increasingly struggled to come to terms with its liberal Zionism and moved in directions that were were progressive. Jewish Voice for Peace, of course, was in many ways the leader of that shift, but then other organizations have come to the fore and started pushing in that direction. The other issue is that in the U.S., the fact that the U.S. is such a backer of Israel, militarily and diplomatically and economically, the fact that Israel is the biggest recipient of American military aid means that for American taxpayers, this is something that is personal. They are personally complicit in a regime that now international human rights organizations are calling an apartheid regime. And this is something that is a domestic American issue as much as it is an Israel-Palestine issue. And so what we're seeing in the U.S. are major fissures that have been there for a long time that were almost taboo 
for Americans to talk about now being at the forefront of the conversation. And it's it's incredible working on Palestine at this moment and being called by media that is now looking to hear the Palestinian narrative after that same media gatekeeping the Palestinian narrative for years. And so, you know, there have been signs of this for the past 10 years. And I think now it, it feels like some kind of moment has arrived. Now, I don't want to exaggerate that because it's very easy to fall back into the old silos and the old rhetoric. And I think there's still a lot of work to be done in the U.S., but it certainly feels like a moment of capturing what many have been working for for some time. Henriette, Palestinians in Israel and in the occupied territories hardly needed Human Rights Watch to tell them that they were living in an apartheid regime. They've been saying this for years. But do you think this growing recognition in the United States is felt, is embraced on some level by Palestinians there? Does it embolden them? Does it give them confidence? I think it's felt on on multiple levels. Uh, I agree, first of all, with Tarek that one of the ways that we're feeling it is in what we're being allowed to say uh, in international uh, news media, you know, terms like ethnic cleansing or settler colonialism were sanitized, both in edited print pieces or, or, you know, interviews. And now we're seeing them make it through the edits, uh, which is, I think, a very interesting process, very exciting process that we're able to use our own language to describe our reality. But I also think it's connected to the nature of the progressive movement in the United States. Uh, we're seeing that it's able to link different struggles and bring attention to different struggles from climate justice to labor rights to Palestine. And I think, you know, the, the collective reckoning, this collective moment of reckoning that many Americans have had to accept following the killing of George Floyd, you know, once they've passed a certain threshold, I think it will be very difficult for many of them to remain silent in the face of what's happening today in, in Israel-Palestine. And so I think that's also contributing to the sense that we're not alone in this uh, and that the, the kind of support we're getting might be sustainable. Do you think that this shift from uh, a discourse of self-determination, Palestinian statehood towards equal rights also resonates more among in a progressive movement in the United States that has been reshaped in recent years by Black Lives Matter? Definitely. I definitely think that's connected to that shift. Palestinian statehood was always just one tool in, in, in the path to Palestinian liberation. We're seeing that the Palestinian Authority and the old, the old guard is kind of holding on to it because it's the only thing that's allowing them to maintain legitimacy as the younger generation finds or demands other kinds of connections with the world. Tarek, you are an expert uh, both on Hamas and on the uh, Palestinian Authority. What's your sense of how this latest chapter is going to affect the, the Palestinian Authority? I mean, has the Palestinian Authority been shown up and embarrassed by it? Because I, I have the sense that while Hamas was firing uh, at Israel, it was also aiming those rockets at the Palestinian Authority and its ability to represent Palestinians uh, amid the crisis in Sheikh Jarrah and Al-Aqsa. 
Thank you, Adam. Just just before I answer the specific question on on Hamas and the PA, I just want to say something uh, about what we were talking about now in terms of the intersectional struggles with other liberation movements and what Henriette was talking about now. Just to say that, you know, this idea that the shift to rights and the shift to equality that Palestinians have now been mobilizing towards and that being more aligned with progressives, it's important to understand that shift not in the liberal sense of seeking equality in the Israeli state. Uh, It's a shift that calls for a process of decolonization, which is also a conversation that's happening and unfolding in the U.S. And I very much agree with Henriette that this is that kind of decentering of Palestine so that it's no longer an exception that places it with others, but that places it in a framework of decolonization, not just of, of equality in the liberal sense. And that's fundamental because that's what the movement is. It's not necessarily a movement. It's not necessarily a civil rights movement in the sense that they're all seeking equality in the state of Israel. And I think that's that's a sort of an important distinction to make. But just in terms of, uh, of, of Hamas and the PA, look, I think the PA has been absolutely uh, marginalized in this. I think the fact that the Biden administration reached out to the PA to try to, to de-escalate and, and get to a, a, a sort of resolution shows how out of touch both the Biden administration and the PA are with the current drivers of conflict and violence in Israel-Palestine at the moment. Hamas had its own motivations for doing what it did. For the longest time, the movement has been looking to offload its government in the Gaza Strip, to join back into the the Palestinian uh, liberation struggle and the Palestinian movement without necessarily acting as a governing authority, to, to shed that obligation. And so in the latest iteration, it was hoping that the elections, the legislative elections that were set to take place on the 22nd of May, that President Mahmoud Abbas indefinitely postponed, it was hoping that through those elections, it would find a way out of the Gaza Strip. It would find a way out of being contained and marginalized in the Gaza Strip, that it might end up creating or being part of a unity government, and that would pave the way for the blockade on Gaza to be lifted, which was, in my opinion, illogical because the blockade on on Gaza is not because of Hamas, it's because of the Gaza Strip and the fact that it has 2 million Palestinians, which would be a demographic threat for Israel. But be that as it may, that was Hamas's motivation. Is that why the election was canceled or postponed rather? I think the election was postponed because Fatah felt that there was a significant chance that Hamas would win the elections. Fatah approached this with a divided list and what did not have a strong showing, whereas Hamas, as we saw in 2006, uh, is very good at a, a political mobilization and putting forward a united list and a very clear manifesto. So there was a real chance that the Fatah party's uh, lists would fail. And, in my, and, and I do think that this is why Abbas ended up using Jerusalem as an excuse to defer, indefinitely postpone the elections. And so from Hamas's perspective, it really had no other way of breaking out of that deadlock in Gaza. It was a return to the status quo of the past 14 years. And the costs on Hamas are increasingly higher. The situation in Gaza is more and more desperate. And Hamas is the face of that, even though ultimately the reason is the blockade. Many Palestinians in Gaza would blame Hamas directly as a governing authority. So in this recent escalation, Hamas had nothing to lose. And it had a lot to gain from escalating in the way that it did. Now, doing that, 
made it look like the defender of the Palestinian cause, the defender of Al-Aqsa, at a time when Mahmoud Abbas and the PA had cynically used Jerusalem to advance his own factional interests and delay elections. And the dissonance, I mean, the, the ineptitude of the PA was in full display on the anniversary of the Nakba when Gaza and Jerusalem are literally facing the lethal force of the Israeli occupation while the PA has its forces and its members flying balloons with the flags of the Palestinian people to commemorate the the anniversary. That is what it looked like. That, That is how out of touch they were with the reality of the situation on the ground. And I think people see that. Does Hamas have a project other than resistance? What is its political project? I think that's a very good question. Hamas has been flirting with popular protests for a long time. Even under the previous reign of Khaled Mish'al, Hamas's former leader and now re-elected leader, there was always indication that Hamas was flirting with the idea of popular protest. That was put to the test most concertedly during the Great March of Return, which started in 2018. It was a a popular protest by Palestinians in Gaza, marching up to the fence that separates the Gaza Strip from Israel and the rest of the Palestinian territories, calling for their right to return to their homes in what is now Israel. The Israeli government dealt with that through live fire, with snipers sitting on mounds of earth just beyond the fence, snipering off unarmed civilian protesters, medics, journalists, and the death toll rose to the level where a preliminary investigation at the International Criminal Court suggested that Israel may have committed war crimes against those protesters. From Hamas's perspective, watching that unfold in the Gaza Strip, the lesson that its leaders took was that no matter the sustained popular protest. And this one, by the way, was one of the longest sustained protests in the history of the Palestinian movement, lasting almost two years on a weekly basis, that no matter that kind of popular protest, the world is not going to see what the Israeli authorities are doing. They will not rally in support of the Palestinian protesters and will always invoke the right of Israel to self-defense, even given the disparity of power that we just talked about. And the concessions only started coming when Hamas upped the ante of those protests and started putting in tactics that created more disturbances for Israel and for Israelis living around the Gaza Strip. So the lesson that Hamas has consistently learned from its engagement with Israel is actually that popular protests don't work and that the Israeli government only responds to force. And so what we've seen now in Jerusalem is a similar situation where popular protests actually did get some victories from Israel. The Supreme Court date, the date for the Supreme Court verdict was delayed. But from Hamas's perspective, apart from its own political motivations, which we just talked about, which was to slap the PA, there was also the sense that peaceful protests and popular protests were only going to be met with force and that it wasn't necessarily going to change the balance of power on the ground, that there needed to be more military intervention by by Hamas. And just to say that this was a very divisive decision from Hamas. There were members within the party who were advocating to not do that because it would appear to be co-opting a popular movement that was 
getting headlines. These were Israeli security forces attacking and desecrating Al-Aqsa. And Palestinians were responding with iftar protests and with prayer protests, and they were getting their way. And many Palestinians have felt that Hamas's intervention did co-opt. But the other side of the story is that if this national liberation movement is to work, it has to be inclusive of different tactics. And Hamas's commitment to armed struggle is just one tactic that is, by the way, allowed under international law for for, for anti-colonial movements to to, uh, fight against occupying forces. And so what we're seeing are different tactics of the same movement. I wonder, Henriette, among Palestinian citizens of Israel, is there even much discussion of Hamas? There was a recent interview with the rapper from Dom. Tamer Nafar. Tamer Nafar. And he said, when he was asked about Hamas, I mean, he more or less said, we've got nothing to do with Hamas. And I wonder, is it is Gaza, uh, in perceptual terms, just far away? I mean, the, the, are the concerns just very, very different for people in a place like Haifa? I think it's not so much about Gaza being far away. I think uh, it, it, it doesn't feel so far away. I think it's just Hamas is so toxic in the Israeli psyche, in the Israeli discourse, that any kind of association or even attempt to explain where the organization is coming from, why they're using those tactics can appear as, a, a, you know, as an apologist or it can appear as, as a defense of their actions. It's just not where the, where the conversation is at inside Israel, where you have journalists, you know, on air inciting violence against Palestinian protesters who are unarmed. But also, as Tarek was saying, the popular movement among Palestinian citizens in Israel is not led by Hamas. It's a, it's related, but it's a, uh, Hamas is not its leader. Right. But you also do have parts of, of the Palestinian population inside Israel that feels some sort of validation when Hamas fires rockets at Israel. Um, we, we are actually susceptible to the same rockets. You know, I'm on the phone with my parents who are in Jaffa, who are, you know, where the sirens have gone on throughout the night, you know, this whole week. Uh, so there's definitely harm that we, you know, can be caused to us with those, with those uh, rockets being fired. But at the same time, there is a sense of just to uh, confirm what, what uh, Tarek was talking about, that Hamas is at least putting up a fight with Israel. I want to get back to this question of the growing feeling of of unity among Palestinians in the the constituent parts of the land of Palestine, uh, and for that matter, the diaspora. Israel has been very successful over the years in separating and fragmenting Palestine and in promoting and reinforcing separate identities for people in East Jerusalem, Palestinian citizens of Israel, people in the West Bank, people in the Gaza Strip. And the events of the last couple of weeks have created a much more intense sense of a shared identity, a shared struggle, of um, a shared fight against the same regime of discrimination, oppression, apartheid, etc. A friend of mine in Ramallah was saying to me that while he welcomes that sense of, of unity, his worry is that it's a feeling that has not been and will have a hard time being translated into political terms because the Palestinian national movement is divided. There's factional division between Hamas and Fatah. The The PA is um, completely out of touch. Hamas is uh, really only in Gaza. 
and Palestinians are because of Israeli practices living in are in very different situations. And so his concern is that this this intense sense of unity might end up being fleeting unless it's really uh, acted upon and realized in political terms. And I'm wondering what the two of you think about the chances for that sense of unity being converted into a real political project. How would that happen? I think we're starting to see examples of that on the community level, especially with the recent general strike uh, that was observed by Palestinian communities between the river and the sea. Uh, so there are community actions that definitely highlight that unity. And we're also starting to see, I think, political manifestations of that with projects like Gil al-Tajdid, a new Palestinian party that basically is running parallel elections and is calling on, you know, Palestinians from everywhere to be part of that process. Uh, so, yeah, I think we're starting to see experiments and a little bit of creativity with trying to uh, accomplish or, or, or achieve that unity on a political level. I'm curious what Tarek thinks. Yes, well, I, I agree with everything Henriette said, and I would add a couple of points. The first is that, you know, I think what's most important here is we'll come to unity in a second. But before we talk about unity is the fact that there is a resuscitation of a Palestinian identity, that it's a single identity, that you're not an Arab Israeli or an Israeli Arab. You're not a Gazdan. You're not an East Jerusalemite. You are, of course, focused in a certain geographic area, but you are Palestinian. And that that reclamation of a sense of identity is what's important in my mind, because there has been such deep multi-generational colonization of our minds and our bodies that it's a very difficult process to come out in this way as uh, united as a people in in a struggle against a, a single regime and i think this this process is about shedding that fragmentation and reclaiming a sense of identity that is palestinian and that is focused on liberation so i think you know we're in that phase now but the second point i would say is that when we think about unity often the sense is that we all need to agree on certain things. And the truth of the matter is that we don't. That we have to break out of the factional divide that is Hamas and Fatah, for sure. But also, there might be a lot of disagreement among Palestinians on tactics, on strategies, on one that, what the end goal looks like, on how to get there, on what our trajectory should be, on what, how to engage with and deal with Israeli-Jewish constituencies or with the diaspora. Those are all major questions, and there will be a million different answers to them. The point is not for all of us to have the same approach and to have the same thrust in how we deal with the liberation. The unity is really about having a vision that is inclusive enough to hold all of these different constituencies. So that vision can be one of liberation. And within that, there can be a Hamas, a Hamsawi next to a Fatawi, next to someone who is not factional, next to a, a, you know, a Marxist. And it doesn't quite matter as long as the ultimate vision is one of liberation of Palestine and, and the unity of the people. And I think uh, I completely agree with Henriette that we're in the early phases of seeing the efforts at political institutions that will represent that diversity. And I think that's what needs to be built now. And I think that's the biggest challenge uh, moving forward. Thank you so much for being my guest on this episode of the LRB podcast. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Adam. Adam.